Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now to bless our time together in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look into it once more today. And we pray, Father, that you would feed us as your sheep, as you promised to do. Lord, uh, we look to you for understanding. And Father, uh, I pray that you will uh, help me to be clear and, Lord, to present that which truly represents your will. Keep me, Lord, from any error. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about a decade ago, uh, I shared a story that I'd like to share again this afternoon because it's so fitting to this topic. So some of you may remember it. Some of you may not remember that we did go over the story a decade ago. But it has to do with John G. Patton. And Patton was a famous Scottish Presbyterian minister, uh, missionary to the South Sea Isles of the world. He was born in 1824, and he lived into the early 20th century. And the exploits of Patton for Christ are, are well documented, and anyone who's interested in the work of missions, um, you should acquaint yourself with this man's efforts. It'd be a good exercise. Married twice, both of his wives were testimonies to the challenge and the joy of serving Christ on the mission field. But before Patton became a well-known missionary, he was just a boy growing up in Scotland. And like many boys, he often had his eyes fixed on his father. And Patton said that their home was a modest one. And it was typical of a dwelling place of that time in Scotland. And it consisted of what was called a butt and a bed, or a ben rather, with a small chamber in between. And actually it was just a two-room cottage with a passageway between the two rooms. <clears throat> Those terms might not be familiar to us, but it was a very common description of an architectural uh, um, style found throughout Scotland at the time. And Patton tells us that the little room between the butt and the ben was very small. And there was only room in it for a little bed, a small table, and a chair. And this room in their cottage had just one little window in it, and just a sliver of light came through that window. Now, Patton tells us that this chamber was the sanctuary of the home. The missionary statesman tells how his father would go into this little room between the two larger rooms of the cottage, and he would go there often, usually after every meal, and we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct, for the thing was too sacred to be talked about, that prayers were being poured out there for us, as of old, by the high priest within the veil in the most holy place. We occasionally heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice pleading as if for life, and we learned to slip out and in, past that door on tiptoe, not to disturb the holy parley. So 
This is the place where Patton's father went to pray for his children. And after meals, he would go there and in that quiet place, uh, cry out for his children. And uh, really emulating in part what we were talking about this morning when we were talking about begging and cajoling and and, uh, doing all you can to proselytize your children. An important part of that is praying for them and the effectiveness of God's word in their hearts. And that's what Patton's dad did. He was standing between his children and the world, and he was praying uh, for himself as their father, for his wife as their mother, and for them as his beloved children. And what a great way for children to remember their father as their intercessor with the Savior. I can't think of a father, a Christian father, who would want to be remembered in, in any way better than that, that my children think upon me as the intercessor on their behalf. And in this case, the efforts really brought forth rich rewards because Patton was a great missionary who served the Lord well. But above all, this daily effort on his children's behalf demonstrated the character of the love that Mr. Patton had for his little ones. And the renowned missionary never forgot that love of his father. Now, in contrast to the story of John Patton and his father, is the story of another child who was living at the same exact time. He became convicted of forgery. And he appeared before the judge after he was convicted for sentencing. And the judge knew the young man's father very well. The man was one of the most well-known experts in law at the time, that is, the father was. In fact, he had written the definitive work on trust law for that age. And during the sentencing, the judge berated the forger as being a shame to his father and a disgrace to a man of such esteem. And he raked the young man over the coals, as the saying goes, for having marred the honorable testimony of his father. And finally, the criminal was allowed to speak for himself. The judge says, said, do you have anything now to say for yourself? And that young criminal looked at the judge and said, I remember him perfectly. When I went to him for advice or companionship, he would look up from his book on the law of trusts and say, run away, boy, I'm busy. My, fa- my father finished his book And here I am, standing before the court convicted of forgery. So this great man that you look up to, this is who he was to me. A man so engrossed in that work that he was never of any help to me. No such charge can ever be made or laid at the feet of our Heavenly Father. He never sends his children away empty. He doesn't deny us his companionship unless it's as a trial of our faith or a discipline because of our sin. But even then, he's not far off, and his designs are always loving. In John chapter 14 and verse 18, Jesus says to us, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. 
a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now the Lord uses the Apostle Paul to encourage fathers in their duties towards their children. And he does it with two very similar statements. One that we read in Colossians, or rather in Ephesians, and then in Colossians. The Ephesians passage is Ephesians 6.4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And then in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We're living in a time when the confusion of sin and the chaos that it creates has been unleashed, at least in the public square, and especially in government and and corporate circles. And, And one of the results of sin is the dissolving of natural affections. It's part of what sin does. It, it, it dissolves natural affection. You see it in Adam and Eve, don't you, when they first sin. Um, Adam, Eve blames some, uh, Adam, and Adam blames Eve and ends up blaming God. And here they are supposed to be brought together in love and affection towards each other, and almost immediately they're, they're against one another. And, of course, that even comes to fuller fruition with Cain and Abel. Natural affections dissolve in the atmosphere of sin. And this degeneration is part of the perilous times that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Second Timothy in chapter 3, in the beginning of that chapter where he talks about that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That natural relationship, that natural affection will be watered down and dissolved. Um, They will be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul says, avoid such people. The world has gotten itself into a strange position presently. It's in a position where it cannot definitively define fatherhood. It can't do it. In fact, it's so twisted itself that it dare not define it. Because if it defines it, then it has to betray many of the positions that it's taken in other areas. And so it can't even talk about what fatherhood is. Can't even define what it is. And it's a terrible situation to be in. The Word of God defines fatherhood for us very simply and very plainly and very powerfully. Fatherhood is one of the most natural and beautiful relationships that's been created by God. 
He uses it to describe the relationship between himself and our Savior. And it is throughout Scripture used to convey his tender love for you and me. Um, We read in the Psalms that like a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us. He remembers that we're dust, and he deals with us kindly and graciously. Um, Jesus, is, as uh, Steve pointed out in our earlier service, he teaches us to pray by saying, Our Father. In his great statement on separation from the world and worldliness, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes this, beginning of verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, or you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here in that great statement where he's talking about separation from the world. He's talking about being separated to me, and I will be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me. The relationship is often more of a heart thing than anything else. But it should always be remembered that there's only one true father and that every earthly father, whether he's an earthly father by adoption or a spiritual father, as we talked about earlier this morning, um, or a father in other ways, stepfather, whatever, every earthly father is an agent working on our heavenly father's behalf. He's the one true father. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who protects us. And he's the one who saves us. We can't, on our own, come to fatherhood. Nor can we safely deny it when it's granted. And it's only properly directed by his will as set forth in his expressed, as expressed in his word. Now, In this passage, what do we have commanded of these fathers, these men who are representing God the Father in the context of their families? Well, we have a negative duty. It begins with a negative duty, um, telling us don't do a certain thing. And uh, we were looking at another passage the other night, in our small group, that is, we were looking at Psalm 1, which starts out by telling you what the godly man is not, or what he does not do. And one of the commentators commenting on that said, living in the world as we do, a world filled with sin, often the duty and the place of the believer will be described in negative terms. Because it has to be because we live in in the world that we do, with the sin surrounding us that we do. So what is required of fathers here is first expressed in this negative way. And then at least in the Ephesian passage, there's an alternative positive command given as well. But the negative is this. Do not provoke your children. That is, don't chafe them or work them into a passion is the idea there. 
we have really only a time for a quick survey of what parents might do to vex their children, but it needs to be said that it's wrong to imagine that this is a call for little or no discipline, which is the way sometimes people read this. I'm not supposed to provoke them, so I should do nothing to agitate them or upset them. The Word of God doesn't contradict itself, and we're to put all the truth together. And this provoking involves improper, not proper behavior on the part of parents and especially fathers. So first of all, as we look at that and think about, well, what is it that provokes children? Well, partiality. Let's start there. Partiality provokes children. Uh, Bain, who was a, a, a commentator, wrote a beautiful commentary uh, on Ephesians, um, one that um, some of you will recognize this name. This is for those who will recognize it. Richard Sibbs said this is the best commentary that he believed there was on the book of Ephesians. But he says, as beggars envy alms, so do children the parents' favors, if unequally distributed. So they, they, they want equal distribution in the favors that their fathers show them. And where do we think of where maybe that impartiality expressed itself? Well, you think of Jacob and, and Joseph, and you think of the uh, partiality shown there. And when you think of that, when you see that partiality being shown by Jacob toward Joseph, which produced jealousy in his brothers and, and brought all sorts of harm really into the household, well, where did Jacob learn that? Well, he learned that partiality from his father, Isaac. In Genesis 25, 28, we're told Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So here within this family, you have the split parents, one loving one child, the other loving the other more, and the result is that it teaches the son to have favorites. And so he doesn't mind expressing his favorite. And you see all that comes out of that as a result of it. Partiality provokes. And with that, injustice, I think we can say, provokes as well, especially when it comes to legitimate privileges and liberties. Um, and again, Bain puts it this way. I hope these pictures are, help you to get an idea of it. He says, now as a horse too straightly reined in, will but rise up on the forefeet, so children curbed in these ways cannot but take it grievous. And so he's saying that just like when you bind the horse too tight, the horse rears up uh, because he doesn't like being in that situation, so the child's going to rear up if he feels like he's being unjustly dealt with. Um, Solomon wisely observed that in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that uh, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And though Solomon here is referring to life in general, 
this concept has its place in the life of the child. And a father needs to know, in each case, what the time is and act accordingly. He needs to have a sense of that so that he's operating justly in relationship to his children. It's been observed that some children are born older than others. Have you ever heard that said, that some children are just born older than others? And it's true uh, among siblings as well as children in general. We spoke of partiality earlier, and you can see it uh, reflected a bit in the story of the prodigal, right? I have known fathers who uh, have given endless attention to their less than cooperative children while all but ignoring those who are obedient and, and faithful and try to be useful. And when such, uh, one such father, when he was approached by the neglected son, the father's innocent, really, and somewhat shocked response was, well, you were born older than your brother. You already knew what to do, and I didn't have to worry about you. So I gave my attention to the one I had to worry about without realizing that by doing that, the mistake was that it built resentment in that other son and resulted in sinful behavior because of the resentment it built. And so while the father thought, I don't have to worry about him, because he neglected him, because he didn't think he had to worry about him, he actually opened up, in a way, a door, a door for sin for that son because of that attitude. So there can't be that injustice or partiality. You have to deal evenly in understanding what is even in each case with each one. So both sons needed different but careful attention in that situation. Thirdly, slavery provokes. And that may sound strange, but children are not granted to us to be our drudges or our slaves um, so that we don't have to do what we have to do. Um, but as helpers, and uh, um, only in what befits their age and their ability. Uh, their share in, in household chores and activities should be carefully limited to their proper share for them, given their age and so on. It was interesting to hear yesterday at the memorial service um, of the pay-for-work system that Cliff and Barb Robinson uh, used in their household. And that system made it clear that uh, the children were not indentured servants, and it was uh, uh, it gave them an opportunity to feel like they were contributing in a positive way, as well as earning something for themselves. But they weren't there just to serve in the household. They were there to, to be a part of the whole. But this goes beyond chores, and that's not really the most uh, uh, a dangerous area, I don't think. I've seen parents, and perhaps some of you have too, who neglect their duties and obligations sometimes to one another, and count on their children to do what they should be doing. I've seen husbands let children show love to their wives while they neglect them, and vice versa. Um, so just let that happen within the context of, of the household. Um, and it sometimes happens that Brothers have to be like fathers to their siblings because the father's not fulfilling his responsibility to the children. So 
the, the older brother has to step in and, and take that position. Um, even, um, I've even seen that happen purposely at times. Sometimes it falls out just because of circumstances, but there are other times when there's actually a, a, a desire to see things carried out that way. And that is not healthy, and it's not the position of children. They're not supposed to be the go-between between their parents when their parents are struggling. Then we have anger. Fire provokes fire, Bain says. And it's so true. There's a place for godly indignation, but not immoderate wrath. There's a balance that the Bible calls for in general, but which applies here, I think, specifically. If we are too severe, and unjustly so, that naturally produces a response of hate. But if we're too indulgent, that tends to produce contempt. And we don't want either one of those from our children. We want them neither malcontent or malapert. And malapert is probably not a word that you're easily familiar with, but that means bold, boldly disrespectful. So we don't want them malcontent. We don't want them boldly disrespectful. What it says in Proverbs is true in all contexts. In Proverbs 30, verse 33, it says, For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Just as true as those things are. You press milk, you're going to get curds. You punch somebody in the nose, their nose is going to bleed. You meet people with anger, and you're going to produce strife and anger. That's going to be the result of that. And so fathers have to avoid that because it provokes. Inconsistency provokes. Walking before our children consistently is one of the tools that Jesus uses to either shame or to govern us. When a father is something different at home than what he is in public, he invites a critique from his children one way or another either by rebuke and and shame, shaming them by saying you're not who you say you are, or by calling on you to change. It leads to either disrespect or emulation as well. It's interesting. It was said of Israel as they adopted the idolatry of the pagan Canaanites overtly, that they, according to Psalm 78, verse 57, turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. And the key thing there is they were like a twisted bow. And what that means is when you have a bow and you're firing an arrow from it, if, that, if the bow, the shaft of the bow is twisted, when you release the arrow, that twist in the bow affects the trajectory of the arrow. And the further the shot, the further it is from, from, the, um, from where you're aiming. So you aim well, 
You've got your sight on what target you're trying to hit, but because the, the bow is warped, the arrow goes off in another direction. And the further it goes, the further away it goes from where you're aiming. And we see that obviously here. Um, it's, uh, in this case, the fathers worship their idols in secret and God in public. But their children abandoned the secrecy. Not only did they abandon the secrecy, they came into the temple of God and moved out the holy things of God and set up idols right in the temple. So the fathers just did it in their homes. They just did it quietly and secretly. And they would sneak out at night and go worship their idols on the hill. But their children, they went the step further. The twisted bow of the fathers shot their children way off aim from where they needed to be. Calvin says, to entreat them gently is what we need to do. Um, Not to pardon them altogether or to lay the bridle in their necks or on their necks and to let them do what they list or want to, but to deal so mildly with them as they do not in any wise put them out, that we do not in any wise put them out of heart. So we're being strict We're being clear, we're being pointed, but we're not being abusive. And so what are the possible results where these provocations come from fathers? Well, two are listed here for us by Paul. Uh, Exasperation is the first one. Um, Don't let your children, don't provoke your children so that they come to anger or exasperation is the idea there. And this is a term that's really easy to illustrate. I take a piece of sandpaper. Just take a piece of sandpaper in your mind right now. You got your, your piece of sandpaper? Now, rub it up and down your arm. Okay? And when you're done, the feeling on the arm there, that's exasperation. That's the, that's the idea of the word here. It's, it's doing something that roughens and tears and, and harms and irritates. And so that's... Fathers are not to do that because if they provoke their children, they will provoke them through these things and other things into a state of exasperation, and that's what's forbidden here. Then in Colossians, he says, lest they be discouraged or brought to discouragement, and that's another a word that's really easy to illustrate. You uh, come home from the dollar store with a newly inflated balloon, and that balloon is tugging at the string to get loose because it wants to fly, and it's bouncing all over, and if you let go of the string, it rises right away, and you have to go catch it, and you can knock it all about, and it floats all over, and then a few days later, you come into the room where that balloon is, and it's lying on the floor, barely inflated, and it, it won't rise at all. It's just sitting there on the floor. That's discouragement. That's the idea of discouragement as it's set forth here. And provoking our children can lead them to that, where they go from being that vital, um, living uh, young child who wants to do things and wants to learn things and is full of excitement to just being dull and having no energy and no desire because of the provocation brought on by a father 
who does not carry out his duty in a godly way. And we see it in our society, don't we? We see children who are just deflated. They're either irritated or they're utterly deflated. And a lot of that can be traced back to fathers failing in their duties. So what is the alternative aim? And I'll just touch on this briefly. Paul says in Colossians, bring them up in the training or nurture and admonition of the Lord. Instruction and correction are the tools to be used in raising children. And this instruction and correction are to be according to the revealed will of God. Not your will, but his will. And this is sort of uh, succinctly put by Calvin. By this word nourish, Paul means that they should deal gently with them and show themselves loving towards them. On the one side, nourishment, that is to say kindness and gentleness, and on the other side, chastisement and discipline, that children may be held in awe and not be suffered to be wanton and unruly, but so brought up in the fear of God as they may know that God hath not left them awless and lawless, but that he hath given them overseers to rule their life. It's an interesting term, all, allless and lawless. Not afraid of anything, not feeling there's anything they have to respect, totally without respect, and also without law. That's not what we want to do. We want to raise our children with respect, with a spirit of awe for God and for God's order, and by law by the law of God's word, for their blessing and the blessing of our family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together in your word this afternoon. I pray, Father, that it will encourage and and, uh, strengthen uh, the determination of the fathers among us who are in the work of raising their families right now. And I pray, Father, that it will be a good reminder to all of us of uh, how we are to walk before you and take on our Christian responsibilities in a, in a way that honors you. And Lord, where there's sin, we pray for forgiveness. And Lord, where there's no faith and there is an ear only for the worldly um, a sense of raising children, if anyone should hear this message and be in that state, may they see that it's one that leads to ruin. They don't want lawless and lawless children. They want children who are humble and loving and sitting at the feet of Christ. May we, Lord, uh, find our place there and then lead our children to that place by your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.